I truly think that team mentality of you know who we work with, how we do some things is how we do all things, and those small some things involve the crew. It involves coordination, it involves relationships and connecting to people, and being able to, at your best and at your worst, have each other's back. And, and that's a lot of what flying is. It's having an amazing team, and it's having people that you trust with your life so that you can save others. I'm Lindsay Linton Buck, and you're listening to Women in Wyoming, where I talk with inspiring and influential women around the state and learn about their lives, journeys, and how they got to where they are today. This is Chapter 4, Rising. This time, Lauren Gurney, Wyoming's only female dust-off medevac pilot and owner, head baker of Jackson Hole Cape Company. I learn about Lauren's journey to fly Black Hawk helicopters, her mission to serve and save lives as a medevac pilot, and her creative outlet as a professional baker and chocolatier. Here's Lauren. You know, I think that the first motivations to fly really stem from a young age. There's two things that come to mind, a little bit of a story behind both of them especially because the movie just came out, (laughs) the new Dumbo. I was five or six years old and my parents took me to Disneyland. And I think that's a precarious age where you may or may not remember all of the memories. But I do recall that that is the only ride that I would go on at Disneyland because Dumbo believed he could fly. And it was like initially with the feather, with the safety blanket, and then it was on his own because he truly believed in himself and like that transformative piece in his story. And I wanted to fly more than anything to the extent that when I would get in trouble as a kid and I was being scolded, I would run and jump, no hands out and just full-fledged fly towards something. And my parents would be so concerned as I like face planted and didn't actually fly. If I was okay, that it'd actually get me out of trouble. (laughs) So flying's flying's been uh, around in my mind since a really young age, but I think it really picked up traction in my teenage years. And part of that had to do with the amazing influence and support that I had of my grandfather, Doc Gurney. Tell me a little bit more about your grandpa Doc and how he was a mentor to Absolutely. you. Grandpa Doc, there's so many things that come to mind when I think about him, but the first and foremost is just his capacity for love and this brilliant mind that can just shift between medicine and science and a community the biggest influence he had was starting out in a vet clinic and it was in between school years and I would go work in the vet clinic and save animals. But he also had this other scientific mind behind him as a doctor of oriental medicine and working for NASA 40 years ago for the Valkyrie project and the first Mars lander. And so he had this passion for, is there life outside of what we know on earth? And the love affair of maybe being an astronaut or working with that project started at a young age thinking about, is there a face on Mars? At that time, that was, you know, the new discovery. Is there really a face on Mars and was there life there before? And so the science behind that is really what drove me to having amazing teachers in high school that were science and physics oriented and then carrying that forward into the military and into my college years of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And, but I was so fascinated with science, with math. When you did start thinking about 
becoming a pilot and your inspiration for going into the military and ultimately choosing your path as a, a medevac pilot in particular. Tell me a little bit about that process. The path wasn't linear. <laughs> <laughs> Darn um, it, it never is. <laughs> the, the path, you know, stemming from my grandpa, he served in Korea and there really hasn't been another service member in my family for a lot of generations. And his service in Korea wasn't something that he really spoke about, except the life expectancy of a medic on the ground in the, in the war was 38 seconds if they left the bunker. Wow. But I will say my grandpa had this mixture figured out between the science realm and NASA, but also saving the lives of animals because he preferred animals over humans and had this mixture of different passions. And I think that that's what I identified with first is that you can love both things and have both things. And so when he told me at 16, I have your life figured out for you and handed me this card that said Mars, that just spun me off on this trajectory of, okay, well, how do I get there? Space, how do you get into space? You fly, how do you fly? You go to a military college potentially. So at 16 years old, everything that I'd previously been doing didn't come to a halt, but maybe paused. And then it was like, I wanna go to the Air Force Academy. I wanna fly, I wanna do these things. And in that discovery time, the nonlinear path was joining the military, joining the army, but discovering that I could have both the passion to know about medical things, having a pre-med degree, being interested in that, but my mechanism was to fly helicopters and to save lives. Were you ever intimidated by flying? Because you flew me in a Black Hawk helicopter. And when we got in that thing, I was like, holy cow. I mean, there's nothing automatic about that machine. (laughs) It's totally manual how you operate this thing. Tell me about that training process. And once you had that vision, moving forward and pursuing that goal. Absolutely. So the very first time that I was in a Black Hawk, it was in college. And the pilots that had arrived that day were medevac pilots. And they said, oh, we save lives. And so, of course, that triggered something in my brain to say, wait a minute, (laughs) you're not a doctor, but you have a way to save lives. What is this about? And also in this vast machine that just looks awesome and amazing. And upon further research and applying for flight school, the flight school application process is tedious at best and very competitive. But going to flight school, two sides of that coin, felt intimidated, felt nervous, But I think, you know, having that courage that I was following my right path, it was a choice. And like knowing inherently, like this is what I'm supposed to be doing because I'm this passionate about it. Some of these things just click for me. These things feel right. And then the other side of that coin was feeling like there was a chip on my shoulder because of my gender, because of the percentages at the time of how many females were pilots, not necessarily medevac, but just pilots in general in comparison with males. And that's throughout history. (laughs) And there's a ebb and flow with that now of that percentage and ratio. So I think having the chip on my shoulder maybe gave me a little bit more competitiveness to do well. I graduated as an honor graduate in my class, which surprised me, but at the same time felt pretty resolute in my bones that that was going to happen because of how much I cared about it. And then coming home, coming back from flight school and becoming a mission pilot. So when you graduate flight school, 
you are a pilot, you have your licensure, but it's almost to sit in the seat. When you get home, that's when you really learn how to do your job. You learn what your mission is. And the easiest thing that I can explain here is it clicked 100% to be a medevac pilot and to save lives. Dust off itself stands for dedicated, unhesitating service to our fighting forces. Mm -hmm. And I feel that so inherently in my bones once I get into a helicopter. Things shifted from getting in a helicopter and strapping in and, oh, I hope I do this maneuver right and I hope I fly well and I hope the person flying with me grades me to I get in and strap on the helicopter and I'm taking it for a flight to go save somebody's life. I do want to touch upon the fact that when you were a kid, you grew up racing cars (laughs) with your dad. Mm -hmm. And from the age of nine, you were the SCCA, which you'll have to tell me what that stands for, Mechanic of the Year, age 16. So I know that you've had some background of working on, not that a car is equivalent to a black cock. Is there a link between those two? (laughs) There totally is. Also, just tell me about this background of of being a car mechanic and racing cars. My dad started racing cars, whether or not I cared anything about it at a young age. And my guilty admission is that I was so terrible at fractions. Fractions elude me from a very young age and so the way that I got better at fractions was to organize wrenches and sockets so I could understand like looking at them physically and understanding the size and the multiplication I don't know how my brain worked better being able to physically see wrenches and metric measurements my dad got in a very bad race car wreck and one night taking the car apart it's damaged and mangled and he gave me a a death saw (laughs) That's the name of it. And how old Um, were you when you received the death? Nine. (laughs) (laughs) And I started shearing metal pieces. And I mean, I'm this little kid and I've got on, you know, the protective gloves and eyewear. And, you know, my dad did things right mostly. And I'm, you know, sawing off this huge metal piece of the bumper of the car and eventually just started rebuilding cars with my dad. The very first one we rebuilt was a 76 MG Midget. And I think I fell in love with how things come apart and go back together is the easiest way to say that. And that translates 100% into my job now because I'm a test pilot for my aircraft for H60s and knowing how something works, tinkering, being able to troubleshoot, being able to identify what the problem is and fix it or know how a system works is how part of my brain thrives for sure. When I was 16, a CCA, which is the Sports Car Club of America, awarded me the Mechanic of the Year. Completely shocked me. I had this no is a idea. national organization. Yes, a nas- it was the national championship race. My dad was racing two cars back to back. He was racing an F production 76 MG Midget and a Sports 2 at the time, which is a completely different car. Two different race cars. You sit on two different sides, two different seats completely different like aerodynamics handling everything and i was the crew chief essentially running both race cars working and wrenching on both race cars all he had to do is kind of show up as the driver not that i can't give him a lot of credit for that (laughs) there was a lot of credit but so many other people who were influential and wonderful mentors from the time i was nine years old until 16 until this award saw this evolution of this little girl who loved race cars and then doing everything but you know racing national championships myself so they awarded me the sports car club of america mechanic of the year 
and uh, gave me a brand new toolbox with wrenches. <laughs> what every girl wants. I know, actually, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and it, you know, it just continued to progress, and it translates over to everything I do as a test pilot. I've joked before that I traded race cars for helicopters because I'm much happier in the air and it's a lot faster. <laughs> well, and I also think it translates into your work as a baker because especially in baking, it is very scientific. You can't just throw stuff in a pot and hope something comes out. You do have to be specific and know what you're putting, those yeah. ingredients that are being put together so that you can totally. build something out of it. I And I, I love how you talked about your grandfather too, how he had multiple passions and how that influenced you. When did you start getting into baking and how do you think that ties into or enhance you know your life at this this other you know side of yourself where you're saving lives and going into combat zones and uh you know they're a little bit different they're different realms here <laughs> yes um my dad was 100 responsible for the thousands of tasting spoons in my childhood he was a chef in switzerland left home at an early age around 17 went to the east coast had an opportunity to go to Switzerland and I don't remember if it was as a sous chef or maybe that's something he attained there broke both his legs skiing in the Alps learning how to ski in the Alps (laughs) just some crazy stories from his childhood but his European influence and cuisine there was no box processed food growing up it was made from scratch it was reusing all of the leftovers it was pretty minimalist but also even in those simple foods nourishing foods and also that sense of family and bringing each other together to have sourdough Sundays and to learn about how to make sourdough in general because it's quite a love affair (laughs) to make really good sourdough Mm -hmm. and I think the compliment there is while my dad has had this huge chef influence in his whole life and always cooked for our family even after he got out of the restaurant business he's also been a engineer and a builder so this theme in my family history of having multiple passions and multiple avenues and outlets holds true with my father as well i want to go back to you talked about that shift for you when you got out of flight school when you're still learning how to in many ways truly become the pilot of this very technical powerful machine these black hawk helicopters and the other units that you fly to getting to that point where you're on mission and saying, I'm totally in control and able to to handle whatever comes at me. You've done multiple deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq. You were in Central America. What what was that like actually putting your training into use in these really dangerous, high-risk situations? Absolutely. And I, I think there's so many different answers to those questions. And the first place to start with that is knowing I didn't get there by myself. I didn't come out of flight school just great at what I did. And I was so lucky to have amazing mentors and people who had had these experiences before me, who had done this mission, who took me under their wing, really kind of showed me the path and how to stay calm under those really high pressure moments, how to become a good pilot and then become a better, an even better mission pilot, which is for medevac. And I truly think that team mentality of you know who we work with, how we do some things is how we do all things, and those small some things involved the crew. It involves the coordination, it involves relationships and connecting to people, and being able to, at your best and at your worst, have each other's back. And, and that's a lot of what flying is. 
it's having an amazing team and it's having people that you trust with your life so that you can save others. Well, and speaking of that leadership, when you were in Iraq, you were the OIC, which is the officer in charge. Tell me about that leadership process for you of, of, I'm assuming, probably being the only woman on your team and also being the leader of that team. I think the initial challenge with that specific deployment was that we were given the initial order to deploy to a different country. First, we were going to Kuwait. And due to the situation and uh, the need for medevac in Iraq, we were we went north. And we were right outside of Mosul, which is a pretty big conflict area at the time. And really, I we were broken up into three different groups. So you didn't we didn't have the cohesion of having everyone and being able to kind of pick and choose who you had on your team. We battle rostered, which is just a fancy way of saying we picked the best people to fly with everyone and create these really cohesive groups, but then change it up so that you had new people coming in with new strengths or different weaknesses and to develop everybody. I think it wasn't the only female there. We we had a critical care nurse that came with us. We had one other female pilot that was our chase, which means that they fly the UH-60s that are air assault and they actually have guns mounted for our safety, for the safety of medevac and to help us. So there were other females, but we were all on a different schedule. And I I would say the thing that brought us together the most, male or female, was we were on a very small compound and we were very close quarters (laughs) living in Alaska tents and we really had to just synchronize. We had to communicate well. We had to synchronize our schedules. You know, we had to understand what we're there for. And when you understand every single day what you're there for, what your why is, it brings everyone on, on the same page. That, that's probably the biggest strength of that year was trying to bring people together and understand their why mm-hmm. and understand what we're doing it for because it's it gets lost. It gets lost in, in how hot the days are and how hard the days are. And when you don't save people, being able to come together and know that you have each other's back. You really are, are truly there to go in and save lives on this path of service that is so important for you to serve. Why is also being a part of more of the life-saving mission rather than being in the direct combat where you're the more of a defender role so important to you? I think the theme of that maybe stemmed a little bit from my childhood and watching my grandpa save animals and his community involvement, his service in Korea probably played a small part in it. But I think my heartstrings really get pulled by the fact that we are all serving in our capacity, whether you're special forces, whether you're in a host nation, NATO country, whether it's specific army groups that are on the ground, like there's boots on the ground and we're in countries that don't want us there necessarily. We're in countries that would destroy our way of life. And one of the biggest ways they do that is by capturing or killing us. And us meaning NATO forces, US soldiers, in whatever capacity we're serving. And to be able to save them, to be able to have this skill set that it's, I have this crew, I have paramedics, I have crew chiefs, I've honed these skills as a pilot to be able to get to them in this golden hour to save their life, whether it's life or limb or eyesight, that is what calls to me. It's to be able to give them a second chance. I think something that really stood out to me when we were together down at the base was that team and how competent and 
true hero warriors, <laughs> you know, all of you are from the paramedics, to the pilots. But something that was very humbling was while we were, I got to join you on this training flight, I think pretty much everyone else in that chopper, they were all getting deployed. And I think as a civilian, you sometimes forget we're still over in Iraq and Afghanistan, and this isn't over. Just wondering how that makes you feel having come back from that deployment. There's still a possibility you'll get deployed again. What goes through your mind when you're you're still flying to potentially be deployed again. There's a couple of different thoughts there. The first thought is I love being up in the air no matter what. Sometimes it's just training missions, sometimes it's instruments, sometimes it's test flights. It's not always just the mission. On the state side, we have so many fantastic avenues that we get to fly. I got to come up here to Jackson Hole High School and do a career day. We also do firefighting in the summer when it's needed and can, you know, drop water and retardant on raging wildfires and protect houses and work with our community in that respect. We do search and rescue. We also do different VIP missions. So there's a lot more that we can do stateside and you don't have the fear for your life like you do in a combat zone, but you also have to train that way. You have to train with the idea that eventually the skills that you're honing today and the training that you're doing today, you have to take overseas and be responsible for the lives of your entire crew. That's what a pilot in command does. It's the safety of the flight, but it's also bringing everybody home every single time. So I think trying to reenact the scenarios, doing realistic training with our medics and our pilots and our crew chiefs, and trying to remember things that we've experienced that were extremely difficult or extremely hard or challenged our decision-making process while we were deployed, and reenact that stateside where we don't have the same dangers gives us a better opportunity to know what it feels like or know how we're going to react or train our reactions into making the best decisions possible. Tell me about coming back from these deployments and rebuilding your life. The coming home process always feels different. You would think that it would be the same across the board and there's pieces and parts that you can pick out of it that are like, oh, I've felt this feeling before. I remember this feels like my life is in shambles, everything is destroyed, I'm having to rebuild everything. And those feelings are valid, they're just maybe not accurate. A lot of the time when you're deployed, you feel like, oh, life just goes on without you and you miss so much. And it's true to an extent. So every time that I have come home, the resolute feeling has been starting over. And what does starting over feel like? And one of the things to mention here is that, and I've said this to you before, but you can't be a victim and be happy. And it's hard to not feel like a victim of a deployment in the sense of a loss. And it's really hard to be happy right when you get home. So my last experience in coming home from Iraq in 2016, my life went completely upside down. And there was a lot of destruction and there was a a lot of pieces from a divorce, from a closed business, my dad being diagnosed with brain tumors, a lot of things that felt very heavy. And at the same time, during that deployment, while those things happened consecutively, (laughs) I knew if I didn't pause and start taking care of myself, I was gonna lose my own life to being a victim and those dark and twisty areas of your brain that can get the best of you. And so it was actually about five to six months into the deployment that I reached out for help. I started working with a mindful coach over sat phone and email. 
And it was recognizing my job to save lives is negated if I can't save my own. If I can't recognize and label and start working through having some awareness, yes, but having more context and more tools to be able to help myself. I do believe that the Army has done a lot better in general across actually most military branches in helping with some of the post-traumatic stress, having a lot of mental awareness programs and help, psychological help. I think they are doing a better job of making that available, but there's still a stigma associated. And one of the hardest parts about that is often they want to take you out of your job in order to help treat your brain, where the truth is, is that you need to stay in your job and focus on what you love, what you're passionate about, your reason why you're there, Mm. while also working on your brain. So I think the biggest lesson in coming home is that help is okay, you know, and, and the guilt for the lives not saved, the guilt over a divorce, the shame over a closed business, that's not my guide. That's not my God. You know, I don't owe those things. My job is to have goals and to give them context to grow out of them and to rebuild my life. And initially that was to come home here to Wyoming and join the Wyoming National Guard and find my purpose again. I think that's so, so powerful. Just asking for help and while you're in that scenario, not waiting till it's too late. How did, I'm just curious how you found your mindful coach. Due to the location that we were at, we didn't have exclusive resources that were with us or embedded with us that maybe could have helped me tackle the mental situation that I was already in. However, socials get a win today. I found her over Instagram and I finally reached out via email and it was a pretty short email. It just said, this is who I am. I'm in the middle of a war zone and I know I need help. And the reason I'm reaching out is because I keep reading these things and something inside of me is saying, this is what you need. This is the the juice of the journey here. This is your step forward. This is to pull yourself up, is these little things. And it's like just reading something, you you have to put it into action, you know? And at the same time, action in adversity, in some of the toughest adversity that you can have. Again, being with mostly males in a situation where you can't ask for help. You can't have physical touch to remind you that you're human and you're vulnerable and you have emotions and you need love. You have to be, you have to represent strength. You have to represent having it all together. You have to um, exude confidence and decision-making and leadership and bringing your team together when they're at their lowest or also making sure that they aren't complacent at their highest. It's like with all those responsibilities, again, it was like on the forefront of my brain saying, you have to do these things for yourself also. Reach out, see what she says. And she was incredibly compassionate and understanding that there was going to be times that we would set an appointment and I may not be on the other end of the line. I may be on a call. I may be out saving lives, which is what my job is. But she was also there for the times where we didn't save the lives. And we came back and I couldn't reach out in that way of I needed somebody to hold space for me. I needed somebody to hear how low I was without losing face with everyone I was deployed with. And she was that for me. She was a, a boy. She had a lot of space and a lot of strength for me. Yeah, and you still work with her today, correct? Yes. Yeah, what, what do you think has been the number one takeaway from that experience that you've carried into your life today? 
the very first word that pops into my brain is authenticity. Being able to just own my own story and sit across from you or in the confidence of some of my closest friends and say, these are my lows and this is what I did with them. In the face of adversity, in the face of this destruction, I think second to that would also be that awareness. You know, it's you can have those intuitive feelings, you can follow your gut, but really it's like you can't just name it. You've got to put action into it. You have to move in that. Mm-hmm. You have to have the tools to like recognize things, but do something about it. 100%. Yeah. yeah. You it's great to think about it, but it all comes down to putting putting something into motion Mm -hmm. and trusting that you know my story or my strengths and my lows the the things that have guided me or misguided me or put me on different tracks again that path is never linear the healing path my own personal path it's never been linear but that is where the juice is like that's the the kind of journey that I want to be able to talk about I want to switch gears just slightly because you have this pretty intense side (laughs) of your work, which is saving lives. No pressure there. The flip side of that is you have your own baking business. And what is the joy and the spark and the why in this creative venture and this whole other side of of who you are and what you do? Absolutely. I think it's a hereditary sweet tooth. (laughs) (laughs) We, we the, all of the Gurney family is has it. I would even argue that some of the Dornans have a sweet tooth as well. It really stemmed with my dad, again, with all of the cooking in my childhood and baking from scratch. And I swear I never saw a measuring cup. <laughs> I really think it was gauging. And, and that maybe um, started the spark of the chemistry between ingredients and the baker is really where desserts take life you know, or where they get that extra magic from instead of just the preciseness. And so carrying that forward, I was still flying after flight school and had had a Operation New Horizon deployment to Central America. I came back from Guatemala and was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to fly full time? Am I going to get a job somewhere? And I had done so many cakes for other people and it was by order that I thought I've done this my whole life I've worked with chocolate I've grown up baking I've done all these orders what if I did this as a business could I wake up every single day and love this and the answer has been yes since 2011 2012 (laughs) I've actually baked in every single country I've deployed to which is another (laughs) story in itself but it was born as a chocolatier company in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it was Cocopelli Chocolatier then, specializing in cupcakes and chocolates. And we had ice cream at one point and we're doing custom cakes. And the transition home to Dornan's, to my family's business, was bringing all these fun ideas and different things that I was good at and kind of melding into my family's bakery that has this longevity in the valley since 1916, really, when it was a dude ranch and baking for them for the grocery stores and the restaurants. And as I rebuilt my life, also growing the sweet side of the dreams, the sweet side of the Tetons, and last year purchased Jackson Cake Company, but also my avenue for letting the creative side of my brain play and for baking these delicious treats and being a part of people's lives when they celebrate their weddings and their birthdays and their anniversaries and being a tradition. You know, whether it's cakes or desserts or somebody's favorite flavor of something is what I get to create. Totally sounds like your lightness, your play as a fellow business owner (laughs) and creative. 
I know that it's not all fun and games. Having <laughs> your own business definitely comes with its own stresses, but at the same time, just something that's joyful and fun and and that play. Absolutely. You know, someone's life on and the there, line. Right. And there, there's still a lot of pressure uh, for wedding cakes. <laughs> true. If for some people, the, your life is on the line. That's true. It feels that way, especially as the sixth tier is rocking in the vehicle as I stomp on my brakes for an elk. <laughs> but <laughs> right. um, yeah, there, there is still a pressure because the underlining factor with desserts, it's yes, you want it to taste good. You want it to be somebody's best thing they've tasted in their life. And that is the highest compliment that I receive often. But I always want to do a good job mm-hmm. because it's something that it's like, the, it's one of the very first things that a bride and groom do as a married couple is cut into their cake and potentially, if they're into it, feed each other. <laughs> and so as the first act, it's like, that's something that I've created for them to be in awe of, to enjoy together, to build this tradition. Maybe they've carried a significant heirloom piece from their family to cut into the cake. It's really wrapped up into love and that's so important to me when I bake and sometimes that just means really good music and dancing around the bakery and not caring that I have flour and sugar to my elbows to my earlobes Mm -hmm. (laughs) but really just having the place the bakery the relationships be about love and connection that's beautiful well and I I do think there's a tie probably with the pressure, like you were saying, especially (laughs) weddings. It is very high pressure, especially in our town, which is a destination wedding spot and people are investing a lot of money to have their weddings here. So would you say you work well under pressure? You like those type of situations? (laughs) Right, there's always like the two different types of people, but I get super calm under pressure when I'm flying. And I think that the demand to stay calm and to make decisions or, or how you make decisions under pressure is a little bit different than how I do it with weddings, but the focus is the same. Mm-hmm. It is just this laser, laser focus to the point of almost getting fixated on what needs to happen, what needs to occur. But there's things in the military that have translated to the baking world in like organization and maybe doing things by what has to take priority and prioritization lists and keeping orders in the methodology behind baking probably steals a little bit from my military background too. Whereas on the military side, like the guys get upset if I'm not bringing them baked goods (laughs) before we go fly. Right. That's a major perk of being on your team. (laughs) Totally. They either get chocolates or some kind of baked goods or or something that I make for them. I got to sweeten them up somehow. There you go. (laughs) Well, I would love to talk about you joined the military when you were 17. So you have absolutely served our country and done your service and thank you for that thank you your life is rooted here and you're rebuilding again with your business with jackson hole cake company and being an active member of the national guard with fe warren air force base in wyoming getting to do these other private missions like you mentioned if you could wave your magic wand where would you like to continue to go with your flying in the future in addition to having your business and seeing that succeed as well I think that that's actually my work is, is the question that you've posed is, is the work in progress right now. And it's to say, what are the next goals and kind of having a a standard to uphold, right? I've have these different standards and what I do between the business and the military and contractually what I'm obligated for. I will absolutely do my 20 years and I'll fly for as long as they'll let me. (laughs) And then also looking at the, the bakery side and 
having new standards and new goals to set so that I have a little bit more context in growing Jackson Cake Company, helping grow my family's business, which again has been in this valley for such a long time. We're a fifth generation business and upholding those values in the traditions and the legacy of the Dornan's family and my very small piece (laughs) of baking for the family. But then really, I think the next thing is what is that future self talking about family, talking about relationships, talking about growing a business and what that could look like over the next few years. And resolutely, I know Moose Wyoming or, or Wyoming in general is this sanctuary that I don't think I could ever give up. It's, you know, where I have felt rooted the most and I want to continue to live here and to be here and to be a part of my family's business and continue to grow my own and fly for as long as possible. I think there's some other avenues of flying that I would love to look into. I worked this year, this last winter for High Mountain Heliski for John Schick. I had a wonderful time learning about his operation and would love to be able to fly for that organization and a few others. I would love to work for Teton SAR, Teton Search and Rescue, and continue to embed in my community with all of the different skill sets that I have. Is there still that little girl that got that (laughs) Mars card from her grandpa that maybe if they were like, hey, Lauren, we want you to come fly for NASA. Is that still, is that something that's on your (laughs) Um, mind uh, Yes, applying uh, and interviewing with NASA in April in May uh, down in Florida was my last mission to do analog work. Unfortunately, the time that they need are, are weeks at a time, weekends at a time, 45 days at a time. It's different chunks of time. And then there on the horizon is the potential space force in 2020. The answer is if somebody came along in my chain of command and said, we'd like you to fly jets. We would like you to uh, try out for this program, for an astronaut program. We'd like you to do these things. I would be hard pressed to say no. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I I'd, I'd really would have to look at those, but the excitement, the little kid just came out like, mm-hmm. yes. Yep. That's the year. <laughs> totally. Um, you know, jets or maybe jets or actual space shuttles would be the only thing I would trade helicopters for yeah. at this point. <laughs> I love that. Well, I mean, you've had such a full life up until this point. You have so much ahead of you. What is the biggest lesson you've learned on your journey so far? Trust yourself. You have the answers. They're in there. They really are. You know, the path doesn't have to be linear. The things that you've been taught or maybe grown up with generationally, you have to unlearn a lot. Mm. As I've grown up, that's been the biggest lesson is to unlearn some of the things that weren't going to propel me into my own, weren't, weren't going to help me grow, weren't going to keep me in my own truth or standing tall, but to know that it's inside you and you know, you know what to do. You have to trust in that. You have to trust that you're doing the best that you can every step of the way and keep making those decisions. What would you want to say to little girls listening who are maybe thinking, well, I don't know, I could fly a Blackhawk, but maybe I'll look into that. What would your advice be to more women and girls pursuing their dream? You are so powerful. You are so powerful and trust every single dream that you have. Write it down. Write down the dreams and chase after it. One of the little mantras I said to myself after this last deployment was great big dreams, tiny little steps. And whatever 
that those tiny steps are, whether it's the college application, the military application, the volunteer group that builds houses and maybe you want to be an engineer, whatever that looks like, somebody is going to be willing to take a chance with you and to teach you and to nurture those dreams. So don't give up on them, write them down and chase it with abandon. That was medevac pilot and professional baker, Lauren Gurney. To see Lauren's full profile and portraits, visit womeninwyoming.com. That's womeninwyoming.com. You can also follow my journey on Instagram at womeninwyo, that's womeninwyo, or on Facebook at womeninwyoming. Chapter four is supported in part by the Wyoming Humanities Council and the Equipoise Fund. Momentum is our nonprofit fiscal partner. Additional funding for the Women in Wyoming exhibit comes from Debbie and David Hopkins and Realm Global. The Women in Wyoming multimedia exhibit is on view from October 25th, 2019 to August 2nd, 2020 at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. The exhibit features large-scale portraits and audio soundscape and interactive components celebrating the achievements, power, and learned wisdom of Wyoming women today. I'm Lindsay Linton-Buck, and you've been listening to Women in Wyoming.